We have spent sufficient time talking about death. Now it's time to focus exclusively on what happens afterwards. Now, before we begin, I have an important disclaimer. I've said it before. I'll say it again. There is a lot of opacity and murkiness in this subject. The sources are vague, perhaps deliberately so. And therefore, there are lots of differing opinions as to the nature of what happens to the soul and what is the timeline and what happens when and the various different post-mortem venues that are named in the literature, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, in the Zohar, Gan Eden, Paradise, Gehenna, Purgatory or Hell, Olam Abba, Olam Anashamos, the upcoming world, the world of the souls. There are differences amongst the opinions. What we're going to try to cover today is what I think is the consensus opinion. And as always, I'll try to give you the sources so you can examine them yourself. But the disclaimer has been conveyed. These matters are not expressed in the sources with crystal clear precision. And in fact, the Rambam in some of these subjects takes a unique approach. And when his approach was challenged, the Rambam had a son, Rabbi Abraham, the son of the Rambam. And he spent most of his life, even though he's one of the greatest sages of his time, he spent most of his life defending his father. And one of his arguments to defend his father's opinion on one of our matters that we're discussing today is that given that there is so much discussion and so many different angles and so many different approaches about the very nature of these matters, Ganeiden, Paradise, Gehenna, Purgatory, or Hell, you cannot question the Rambam because he's not taking sides in this issue and he's just maybe making uh, making an approach or taking a stand that is just explaining one of the opinions of his predecessors, but that would be a way to defend. He's not taking a definitive stance. So there's opacity, there's uncertainty, and that said, let us dig in. The way I want to begin is perhaps with the most important and basic of the takeaways. And that is that there is an afterlife. When someone dies, they are in fact transitioning to another realm of existence. They're still alive in some context, in some form. Death is not the final curtains of life. And I think we can also be optimistic. We just read in the parasha, a very interesting Ramban. This is chapter 14, verse 1 of Deuteronomy. The verse says, Banim atem You are sons, you are children to Hashem your God. Do not cut yourself and do not make a bald spot between your eyes over the dead. This verse is telling us that when someone dies and you are racked with agony, with pain, with suffering, with mourning, with torment, with anguish, don't express that by ripping out parts of your skin, parts of your flesh, by pulling out your hair. That's not the way to do it. You are sons to Hashem, your God. You are children to Hashem. That's not the proper way to behave. And Rashi explains that this is the way that the Amorites do it. This is how they mourn. But no, you're children to Hashem, your God. 
You are princes and princesses. You have to look good. You have to look dignified. You have to look noble. You have to always maintain your composure. You shouldn't be ripped up, cut up, and bald and bleeding. It is unbefitting. It is unbecoming of princes to be all torn up, to be cut and bloodied and artificially bald. That's how Rashi explains this verse, chapter 14, verse 1 of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. Now the Ramban, as he often does, he quotes Rashi and he asks a question. According to Rashi, the purpose of this verse is that you are children to Hashem and therefore you're a prince and you're supposed to look good and supposed to always look put together and it's improper for you to be cut up and bleeding and balding artificially. And that's the purpose of this verse. If so, why does this apply only when you're mourning over the dead? If the verse is about us maintaining our nobility, our dignity, therefore we ought to not rip ourselves at any time. But the verse says that the prohibition against ripping yourself up is exclusively when you are mourning over a dead. That's the Ramban's question on Rashi. And he offers a different interpretation of this verse. A stunning one. You are children to Hashem, your God. Our nation is not like every nation. We're close to God. We are a holy people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We're God's children. And therefore, when we die, the Almighty is going to take care of us. And he's going to ensure that we have life after death. And therefore, for us, death is not permanent. And therefore, you have to have proportionality when you are mourning. To cry, to mourn, that's okay. But unhinged hysteria, ripping out your hair in anguish, cutting yourself up in misery, that's an inappropriate response to death because you are children to Hashem your God, and therefore death is not permanent. Death is a relocation, a transition. The person is just as alive as they were previously. They have relocated. You could even say that maybe they are more alive than they were previously. They just have moved on to a different place, to a different dimension, and therefore we must react to death accordingly. And he points out the Torah does not ban crying. That's okay. Mourning, that's okay. Eulogizing, that's encouraged. Of course, even Abraham cried when Sarah died. But don't mourn excessively. There is life after death, and therefore excessive mourning, as if you lost something forever, that is what is prohibited. And that's why this prohibition is limited to defacing oneself exclusively due to a dead person, there is life after death. There is eternal life. When we leave this world, we transition to another dimension, to another realm. Now, what that looks like, as we mentioned at the top, it's a great mystery. There's a lot of opacity, but we will try to unpack it all to the best of our abilities. Now, there are a lot of different places that a person 
a soul can end up after they die. And we're going to focus on two of them today. Paradise and Purgatory, Ganeiden. And Gehenom, in Hebrew, what are these places? What is the purpose of these venues? What is the understanding of these locales, or these worlds, if you will, where the soul can end up? And we're going to introduce the subject with an exquisite piece from Ramchal, in Derech Hashem, The Way of God. This is the best single-volume explication of Jewish philosophy. And in section number one, chapter three, we read the following. He's talking about the inevitability of death. As we mentioned last time, thanks to Adam's sin, death is necessary to cleanse and refine a person. Why? To facilitate the ultimate reward. The ultimate reward in Olam Abba is capable to be absorbed only by a refined person. Only a refined and perfected person is a suitable receptacle for the complete divine reward in Olam Abba. That's Olam Abba. But the mechanism of how we get there from this world, how we transition to the world to come, it has to be done via a certain process. We have to first, initially, disassemble the body and soul, and only subsequently reunify the two in a process that we call resurrection, which, by the way, is principle number 13 of the 13 principles of faith. Right now, we're in principle number 11, which talks about reward and punishment, and specifically the spiritual reward of Olam Abba. Principle number 12 is the Messianic era, Messiah, Mashiach. Principle number 13, the 13th, the final principle that the Rambam enumerates is the resurrection, Tchias HaMesim. That's this process of once again binding body and soul, merging body and soul together. And that reunification, that is the building or the reconstruction of man to facilitate Olam Abba. So if you think about the timeline, it looks like this. We're here now. We know what that looks like, I think. Body and soul together. And then there's death. And then there's a separation of the body and soul. They each go to their respective worlds. There is this decomposition of the body, which we learned last time, amounts to a certain degree of refinement of the body. There's also going to be a process of refinement of the soul. And then, once the body and soul are ready, they are resurrected, they are merged together, and that new resurrected entity, which will look, we're told, radically different than the way it's currently constructed today, that new resurrected entity is the one that enjoys and the Ramchal tells us that this process of taking a flawed body and a flawed soul, fixing them both, and then rebuilding it once again, that happens both to the individual, to the human, and to the world. The world, too, 
will have to die and be rebuilt for Olam Haba. So we have, think about it this way, we have a flawed person, a flawed world. The person has to be deconstructed, perfected, the various elements perfected independently, and then rebuilt. The world is also flawed. It too must come apart and be rebuilt. And once the world is perfected and the person is perfected, the person once again comes to this new world, which is now called Olam Abba, the upcoming world, and that is the ultimate goal of creation. That's the ultimate destiny. If a person is meritorious and fortunate, that's the destiny of mankind. That's the basic structure. Let's see the details. Since the sin, the Ramchal tells us, Derech Hashem, section 1, chapter 3, since the sin, we cannot achieve the ultimate destiny that is the goal of creation. Olam because there is a flaw, there are blemishes in mankind, in humanity, and in the world, since the sin, not man and not the world, are fitting, are suitable for Olam Rather, there needs to be some sort of process of death, decomposition, and renewal, coming apart, disassembly, and rebirth, both for man and for the world. And this process of separating the body and soul and then putting them back together, that is the process of achieving perfection, which he defines, by the way, as the soul purifying the body. That cannot be achieved now. It can only be after the soul and body separate, they depart, then they return, and now that they have been upgraded independently, now the soul can fix the body and achieve the ultimate perfection in Olmaba. And again, this process happens both to the person and to the world. The world will be destroyed. We actually believe that. The doomsayers have it right. Where they go wrong is they think they have a say in the matter. Man is condemned to die and be reborn. The world is condemned to die and be reborn. There's resurrection for humanity. The world too is going to be destroyed and be resurrected. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says, This world, there may have been previous worlds, but this world is a sixth thousand year enterprise followed by a thousand years of destruction followed by rebirth so we have six thousand years the way it is today a thousand years of destruction after that thousand years of destruction god will renew his world now the world and all those people are ready for Omaba. that's the big picture our world the world to come, we're going to talk today about the interim period, the period of destruction, the period of separation, the period with the body and soul go in their separate places. Our world, well, that's something we're familiar with, body and soul are united. Olaba, it's the same kind of dynamic to a certain extent, but now it's a fixed, perfected world. And it's a fixed, perfected people. 
Again, the body and soul are reunited. The soul's been changed. The body's been changed. And now perfection is possible. What happens in the interim? Think about all the people who have died. Billions, maybe? They are in this interim stage. They are between the worlds. They've left this world. Their body and soul have been separated. They're not quite yet in the next world. Their body and soul have not yet been reunited. And of course, the world is not ready for it because obviously the world's not yet been destroyed and be rebuilt. What happens in the interim? Continues the Derech Hashem, the way of God, authored by Ramchal. Because death is unavoidable, man as a composite of body and soul needs to be broken down to its component parts. There has to be a period of separation and the parts need to go someplace and accomplish a specific goal. And the Almighty designed places for the parts of the person, the body and the soul, fitting places where the proper processing and developing and refining and perfecting can be achieved. So the body has to go back to its roots. And we talked about how the body decomposes and there is some judgment. Read that as perfection that is accorded to the body in the grave. What about the soul? Does it need refinement? Does it need cleansing? Does it need purging? What has to happen to the soul to prepare the soul for the reunification of the body to be, once again, be rebuilt for Olam What happens to the soul, of course, depends on the state of the soul at that time. Suppose the soul is completely flawless. Then it goes to paradise, which is called Ganeden, or the Garden of Eden in our literature. It goes there to wait, essentially, to wait for the body to be ready, to wait for the world to be ready. Evidently, if the soul is perfect, then the taint that needs to be undone is found in the body, not in the soul, as we mentioned last time. And I know this is maybe a bit confusing. You might have to listen to this one twice. Adam, the sin of Adam caused that man has to die. There has to be some removal of the bad that was absorbed with the sin. That taint, assuming it wasn't compounded by the person's own choices, that taint is found in the body. If it's compounded by sin, then the soul gets sullied as well. But assuming someone is completely sin-free, like the four flawless ones that we talked about last week, then the soul gets ushered to paradise, to Gan Eden. For this purpose, the Ramchal tells us, the world of the souls was created. 
And the first goal of the soul in paradise is to wait out the cleansing of the body and the cleansing of the world. The world is not ready. The body is not ready. They have to be prepared and the soul is in a very pleasant waiting room. Now, what's it like? So we're told it's actually quite pleasurable, quite sublime. And the Ramchal tells us it's not the ultimate destination, it's not the ultimate reward, but the stature and the pleasure and the experience for the soul in paradise is akin in some way, is a measure of the reward of Olam Abba, of the pleasure of Olam Abba. He tells us, of course, a person's status, a soul's status in paradise, in Gan Eden, is all going to be relative to its accomplishments in this world. But he reminds us, full-scale reward, the ultimate reward is only in Olam Abba, which is the world that comes after the resurrection, after the body and the soul have been reunited once again. So the first goal of paradise, the good kind of afterlife, this not life, not the life of the next world, but the between life, the interim life between this world and the next, the first thing that we know is that it's a waiting room, a very pleasant one, for the body to be cleansed, for the world to be cleansed, for the settings to be set, to be prepared, to be readied for Olam Abba. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two of paradise is to restore the soul to its former brilliance and power. As you recall, when the body and soul are reunited, the soul is going to purify and elevate the body. That's this process of resurrection to prepare for Olam Abba. When the soul was united with the body, the Ramchal tells us, some of its brilliance and power were curtailed. Some of its resplendent brilliance was dimmed. And therefore, in paradise, beyond this function number one, that it has to wait out the body to be ready, the world to be ready. And beyond, of course, the enjoyment of this pleasure akin to Olam Abba, the soul has its power and brilliance restored. And of course, that's very important because once the soul and the body reunite in resurrection, the soul has a lot of work to do to perfect and to elevate the body. So according to Ramchal, there are two purposes of paradise. Again, it's a pleasure. It's an experience that is akin, that's similar to Olam Abba, but the soul is alone, not with the body. Number one, it has to wait out for the body to be ready, for the world to be ready, and then it could kickstart this process of resurrection. Number two, part of its capacities that it needs to facilitate the resurrection and the uplifting of the body 
they have been diminished and they need to be restored. And that is done in paradise in Gan Eden. Now, it's important to note, this is not a monolithic existence. Not every person's experience of paradise is the same. It's quite varied. It's quite dynamic as well. Yorim Chal tells us, elsewhere in his writings, this is in Sefer Karim, the book of the principles. There are many different levels of Gan Eden, And there's the lower garden, the lower paradise, and the upper paradise. And in the lower paradise, the souls are somewhat similar to the bodies that they were in. And they experience spiritual pleasures. And in the upper paradise, the upper Ganeiden, the souls are not quite like bodies. They're much more soul-like. And the experiences and the spiritual pleasures that they unlock over there are much greater and more sublime than those featured in the lower paradise. And there's different times, and there's different eras, and there's different pleasures, and there's different degrees, and there's different gradients. There's a lot of literature talking about the lower paradise, the upper paradise, how a person moves up the rankings, all discussed at length. The principle, we know. The principle is, if the soul does not need any cleansing, it's perfect. It goes straight to paradise. And there, again, there are two goals. Number one, to wait out for the body in the world to be ready for resurrection and Olamaba. Number two, to restore the capacities and the power and the brilliance of the soul to enable it to achieve that perfection once it is reunited with the body. Now, I want to answer a question that I'm sure many of y'all are asking. There's an interesting parallel. The Hebrew name for paradise is Gan Eden, which is the same name as Gan Eden or the Garden of Eden in the Genesis story. Adam was in the garden. He made some poor choices, as we know. He was booted from the garden, and there were the cherubs, the angels, with the flaming, swirling sword. Is that the same place? Are they different places? Apparently, one is a physical venue. Adam was, after all, in this world. And one is a different world, the world of the souls. So this is a great question. And how do we know it's a great question? Because the Ramban... He asks this question. Why do two ostensibly different things, the place where Adam was and the place where the souls go to in paradise, why do they have the same name? And the Ramban says that there are always parallels between the spiritual world and the physical world. Everything that we see over here is a manifestation, a concatenation of what exists in the spiritual world. For example, I'll just tell us, the physical temple in Jerusalem is aligned, is parallel, corresponds to the spiritual temple in heaven. Everything that exists over here has a spiritual root and counterpart in the higher realms. 
And therefore, these two things are both called Ganeiden, not because they're the same place, but because the most pleasant and luscious and enjoyable paradise in this world corresponds to the most enjoyable and luscious and pleasant and pleasurable venue in the world of the souls. Hence, they are both called Ganeiden. Now, I did have a question, which I don't have an answer to. If they are true parallels, it would imply that just as Adam had free will in the lower garden, in the earthly terra firma garden, do souls in paradise have free will? An interesting question, which I don't have an answer to. It's a very advanced question. But thus concludes our discussion of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, in heaven, paradise, where the perfected souls go to after they die, after they've been judged, after there's the full reckoning, the full accounting, they end up in the wonderful place in heaven to wait out until time is ready, the body's ready, the world is ready for resurrection and the ultimate which is Olmaba. That's Ganeiden. What about Gehenna? That is paradise. What about purgatory? Hell. So again, we go to Ramchal. Again, in Derech Hashem, the way of God. This is section two, chapter two. And he tells us, in his kindness, in order to facilitate as much salvation for humanity, the Almighty created a method of cleansing for someone to whom cleansing is beneficial. People sin. That happens. And when people sin, they get sullied. And some people sin so much They get so sullied, they are irreparably damaged. Their soul is beyond repair. But what about someone who is in between? They're not completely, 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 pristinely righteous. They can't go to paradise. But they have not been irreparably sullied. What happens to them? Those people the Almighty created in His kindness and benevolence the process of cleansing. And the Ramchal tells us that the most significant of these forms and venues of cleansing is Gehenom. And the purpose of this Gehenom purgatory is to punish the soul in a way that afterwards they will not have any lingering effects of the blemish to their soul. When someone sins, their soul gets damaged. There is a process called Gehenna, which is, again, like he tells us, the most significant of the post-mortem cleansing processes in that venue, in that world, in that location, in that experience, the soul is cleansed. And thus, consequently, the soul is rendered capable of receiving reward. Now, we tend to think of this 
as a very bad place. If you look at how the Ramchal addresses it, how he frames it, he presents it as a great boon for humanity. Almost everyone is salvageable. Imagine if only the perfect tzaddikim are eligible for Olam Abba. Imagine only the people who go directly to paradise are capable of achieving the ultimate goal, which is Olam Abba. So few people would reach that goal. We're told that over history, only four people never negatively impacted their soul with sin. Now, it doesn't mean that they're the only four people that would be eligible, because again, we have the concept of repentance, which would be a way to fix the soul's blemish even in this world. But regardless, if it was only those who were completely clear of any spiritual defect or malady to their soul when they die, very few people would end up in Olam Abba. Very few people would go to the finish line to the goal to accomplish the objective of creation. And thus, the means of cleansing the soul from the damage wrought by sin, that's hugely beneficial. As a result of this system, the ones that are completely unsalvageable are quite a few. There is a paucity of people that are lost forever. If there's even one little point, one scintilla of righteousness, everything else can be cleansed away by Ganom, and that one refined point of goodness can be restored and can go to the end of the line and can be a receptacle for the true reward and the true eternal pleasure of Olam Abba. So Gehenna is a place of cleansing, cleansing and punishment to render someone eligible for Olam Abba. Now, the details of this are quite vast. There are many different levels of Gehenna. The Talmud tells us that there are three entrances to Gehenna, one in the desert, one in the sea, and one in Jerusalem. The Talmud also tells us this is in the book of Erevin, page 19a. There are seven names for Gehenna. Implied from this is that there are seven different types of punishment and cleansing, seven different realms of purgatory. Now, the sources that are quite hard to read delineate the precise sins that are atoned for in each one of these seven realms. To me, it seems obvious that when the Talmud tells us there are seven names for Gehenom, and the Talmud elsewhere in the book of Sukkah, page 52a, the same page in Talmud that we quoted last week, the Talmud tells us that there are seven names for the Yitzhahara, it seems obvious to me that just as there are seven different identities of the Yitzhahara, because there are seven different ways that it gets us to sin, the result of these seven types of sin would be ameliorated in these seven names of Gehenna. Each type of sin brought about by each type of Yitzhahara creates a type of blemish on the soul, and each one of the realms of Gehenna is designed to remove a given type of stain. 
So again, seven different levels of Gehenna. Of course, because everyone arrives to this judgment differently, the duration of how long a soul will have to spend in purgatory before it can be transitioned to paradise, that's going to vary as well. The Talmud tells us in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 17a, the Jews who are sinful with their body and the non-Jews who are sinful with their body, they descend into Gehenom and they are judged there for 12 months. And after 12 months, their body is finished, their soul has been burned, and a wind comes, and the wind scatters their soul under the feet of the righteous. Now, incidentally, the idea that we've talked about, how the body and the soul are in in parallel systems, they are being cleansed, that is featured here in this Talmud, the body is finished, the soul has been burnt. But here we're talking about a sinful person in their body, both Jew and non-Jew, has spent 12 months in purgatory in Gehenna. I speculated in the past, the Talmud tells us that there are 365 different transgressions in the Torah. Of the 613 mitzvos, 248 of them are positive, performative mitzvos. And the other 365 are transgressions, negative mitzvos. And the Talmud explicitly says that it corresponds to the days of the year. And then the Talmud tells us that the worst sinners spend 12 months, spend the year, in Gehenna. Maybe there is a sin for every day, and every day the person is judged for that sin. And by the way, this is implied as much from the sources. They say there's an angel for every sin and the angel judges and punishes a person. And when that angel is done, it extradites the person to the domain of the next angel. So perhaps every sin is addressed in one day. Therefore, if a person is a completely sinful person, they've blundered, they've stumbled upon every one of the 365 transgressions, the maximum amount of time they would be in Gehenna will be a year. So obviously, this duration of Gehenom is for, at least what it seems on the surface reading, that is for the very egregious offenders. Suppose someone is generally righteous, and they did one minor misdeed. They cannot go straight to paradise because there is a blemish in their soul. Maybe they'll need a half hour in the purgatory. Maybe they'll need a minute. Maybe they'll need a month but they'll definitely need less time. The more blemishes the soul has, the longer the cleansing process will take. Now, there is a custom, of course, for children to say Kaddish for the duration of their parents' stay in purgatory to help their parents' soul, parent or relative. After someone dies, they cannot help themselves. They don't have the ability to do mitzvos. But their children can help them. Their children can do mitzvos on their behalf, can study Torah for them, can pray for them. Their money can help them. If they give charity in the merit of their deceased relative, 
provided they allocate it to a righteous cause, that can uplift their relative. And by the way, even if their mitzvos are not explicitly dedicated to the merit of their deceased relative, the mere fact that the children, that the descendants of the deceased are righteous, that will provide aid to the deceased parent or antecedent. Their children, their descendants can help them, but they cannot help themselves. It's been advised for people to try to help themselves, of course, in their lifetime, but even to set up their estate to help themselves after they pass. So, for example, the Chavetz Chaim, he advises that a person should leave some money with a friend, with a reliable person, so that that person could give that money to charity on their behalf after they die. And he says, you can't trust your kids because the kids, they want the inheritance and therefore they care more about that than about you. That's what he writes. To give some money to a person you trust and that way they could do mitzvot, they could give charity on your behalf, they could support Torah, they could donate Torah books, he writes, on your behalf. Mitzvot will be done on your behalf. You will be aided. You could set that up ahead of time. But once you're dead, you cannot help yourself unless you were smart and clever and set it up, designed your estate to help you. One of the ways that children can aid their parents is with the recitation of the Kaddish. Part of the prayer, of course, the orphans say Kaddish. How long do they say Kaddish for? So the prevalent custom is that they only say Kaddish for 11 months. If the maximum amount of time that someone can spend in purgatory is 12 months, you don't want to indicate that you suspect that your father, your mother, your parent, your relative is totally wicked. And therefore you say for 11 months in order to not give the impression that you think that that after 11 months they're still there. I will point out that Rabbi Elia Lopian, one of the greatest sages of the last hundred years, someone who likely had a low level of prophecy, had a visitation of the prophet and angel Elijah. He said that when the Talmud says that Jews and non-Jews who are sinful with their body, they'll be punished for 12 months. And then after 12 months, their body is finished and their soul has been burnt. And a wind comes and blows the ashes of their soul underneath the feet of the righteous. That is a very lofty state. That's what he said. It's a very lofty state. And he hopes that he can achieve it. That is, of course, a novel reading of this Talmud. The simple interpretation is that that's a very low state. But regardless, there are, or there have been, giants who have written explicitly in their last will and testament to their children, please say Kaddish for me for all 12 months. If a parent, if a deceased relative explicitly asks for the relatives to say Kaddish for them for 12 months, then that would be okay to do it. You would not be besmirching the 
legacy of your relative. So the duration of how long someone needs to be cleansed for in Gehenom, it will vary. For the wicked, or at least the simple way we read the Talmud, for the very wicked, they'll be there for 12 months. And the Talmud continues, but there is a group that never leaves. The heretics, the informers, the apostates, those who repudiate Torah, those who repudiate the resurrection, those who depart from the ways of the public, those who cast fear upon the land, those who sin and cause others to sin like Yeravam, Jeroboam, the one who led the secession, they descend to Gehenom. And even though typically Gehenom, you're there to be cleansed, these egregious sinners, they descend and they are judged for eternity. The Gehenom will end and they will still not be done. This is the worst. There are some people that are so spiritually damaged even Gehenom, even 12 months cannot save them. They must be destroyed. And that will be eternal punishment. And the Kabbalists talk about the seven realms, seven names, seven realms of Gehenom. There is this additional realm beyond the seven where the very worst of the worst are sent. The realm of hell that is permanent. For the most part, the objective of Gehenom is to purge the soul of all its blemishes, to cleanse it, to restore it, to facilitate it going to paradise and eventually reunite with the body and being there for Olamaba. Now, what is Gehenom like? We said that Ganeid in paradise is akin, is a measure, is similar to the pleasure of Olam Haba. What about Gehenom? So from all accounts, it's not pleasant. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 57b, there are five things that are a 60th of something. Honey is so sweet, it's a sixtieth of the manna. Shabbos is so pleasant, it's a sixtieth. It's one and a half percent of Olam Abba. Sleep, you're kind of out of it. It's a sixtieth of death. A dream, you're able to transcend and experience things and witness things. That's a sixtieth of prophecy. And fire, that's a sixtieth of Gehenom. And the sources talk about the five different kinds of fire and how the fire envelops the wicked and their soul to cleanse them. And there are very graphic descriptions of what happens to a person, to a sinner in Gehenom. I don't want to repeat it all here because I'll risk having iTunes, having Apple Podcasts label the podcast as explicit but it's very severe. It's very harsh. If you want to read more about it, it's not for the faint of heart, but if you want to read more about it, read Rashis Chachma, which is the book that we mentioned last week. Last week we talked about chapter 
End of chapter 12. This is chapter 13. All kinds of descriptions of fire and this river, the Dino River, and other forms of punishment and purging. I will tell you, the Ramban says that an hour of Gehenom is harsher than a lifetime of Job's suffering. And of course, that's not pleasant. But ultimately, we remember that it is all for our benefit to cleanse us, to perfect us, to refine us, and ultimately to prepare us for Olamaba. Now, there have been people historically who have used the fear of punishment as an effective tool to make sure that we are living a proper life. Rabbi Israel Salanter used to use fear of punishment as a means to motivate people to live properly. And he would tell people to try to simulate the feeling of purgatory. And he would tell people, take a a match and light it and put it on your finger for five seconds. Then imagine that feeling over your whole body for a whole year. That's Gehenom. And he would use that to try to steer people to live their life properly. I don't know how effective that would be today, but it's an interesting thing for those who have, I guess, the fortitude to not just give up. Sometimes you say, oh, I'm done. I'll just burn forever. Might as well enjoy life over here. That, of course, would would be a negative net result of such an experience. But if someone does have the fortitude and the ability to be able to think about this and try to make sure that they're going to do whatever they can to limit their experience in that painful world, maybe that could be an effective tool in their arsenal. Now, there are many, many sources in the Talmud, even more sources in the Zohar that talk about Gehenom and ways to improve the experience, to lighten the experience, and the ways that those experiences get compounded, get aggravated, get exacerbated. The one thing we are told that is well known, that there is a respite on Shabbos, for those who have observed Shabbos in their lifetimes, when they are in Gehenom, having their soul cleansed and purged, they have a timeout. And the Kabbalists point out, and this is actually hinted to in the Torah, the verse says, talks about resting on Shabbos, Lo Do not make a fire in all of your dwelling places on Shabbos. If someone does not make a fire on Shabbos in this world, then this will be consistent in all of their dwelling places, even after they're dead. They will have a respite on Shabbos. And there's a tradition to start Shabbos a little bit earlier and to end Shabbos a little bit late. And there's even a tradition that when you start Myriv, you start the evening prayers after Shabbos, you elongate the first word, Vuhurachum, which is the first word of the prayers. You make it a little bit longer to give another extra second of respite for the souls in purgatory. The Talmud tells us, this is in the book of Brachos, page 15b, 
If someone recites the Shema, and it's precise in the enunciation of the Shema, that is a way to cool Gehenom, be a little bit more tolerable. The Talmud Book of Shabbos, page 118a, tells us if someone fulfills the mitzvah of three meals on Shabbos, they're going to be saved from three forms of punishment. The birth pains of Messiah, the war of Gog and Magog, Magog, and the judgment of Gehenom. So three meals on Shabbos, that's one way to lighten the punishment of Gehenom. The Talmud in the book of Nedarim, page 40a. Kol ha Whoever visits the sick is going to be saved from the judgment of Gehenom. Elsewhere, the Talmud tells us, if someone designates some of their possessions for tzedakah, for charity, that's another way to merit salvation from the judgment of Gehenom. The Talmud, the book of Yoma, tells us, if someone benefits the public, the Almighty will give them divine aid against needing purgatory. Why? Because it's improper. If I help others and they are elevated and they go to paradise, it will be inappropriate for the person who benefits others to end up in Gehenom. And therefore, this is not a way to avoid or this is not a way to make the experience of Gehenom more pleasant or less unpleasant, but rather it's a way to avoid needing purgatory. The Almighty will benefit you. The Almighty will aid you so that way you won't sin and that way you won't need to go there. Talmud also tells us that if someone suffers in this world, that lessens the degree of cleansing needed in Gehenom. This is a sampling of some of the ways that the suffering of Gehenom is lessened, is lightened. There are things that make it worse. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 33a, if someone speaks in a vulgar manner, Gehenom gets deeper for them. In the Dharam, page 22a, someone who gets angry, all forms of Gehenom control them. And there are some things that make a person more likely to end up in the realm beyond the seven, in the permanent Gehenna. The Talmud book of Bab Metziah, page 58b, there are three people who descend into Gehenna and never get out. Someone who commits adultery, someone who whitens the face of their fellow publicly, embarrasses someone publicly, and someone who gives a degrading nickname to his friend. One more interesting factoid before we review what we've learned. The Kabbalists, they talk about another interesting phenomenon, how a tzaddik can actually benefit the wicked, can go into Gehenom and pluck souls out of there. And the sages tell us that this is perhaps hinted to in the verse in Proverbs. The tzaddik falls down seven times and gets up. 
this is perhaps referring to on one level that the tzaddik falls down, descends into the seven realms of Gehenom and gets up and extracts souls from being judged there. There's also the Talmud that tells us that Abraham sits at the entrance of Gehenom and someone who's lived up to the ideals of Abraham, Abraham will not allow them to enter. Again, there are countless, countless, countless sources about it. But the bottom line, the big picture in review is that there are three worlds that we're talking about today. Our world, we are familiar with body and soul and the challenge and the conflict of life. We are positioned in a, in a world that encourages us to ruin our soul. And after we die, we have to live with our choices, live with the consequences of our choices. That's world number two, the world of the souls. And that world, the soul, if the soul is fortunate, if it is not irreparable, the circumstances of that world are designed to prepare the person, both body and soul, for the resurrection, which is world number three. All of the upcoming world, that is the goal. Our world and the world of the souls are there to get us there. And in the interim period, what happens after death, the body and soul are separated and both are primed for the world to come. Someone who is perfect, they can skip Gehenna and go straight to paradise. And there they await the readiness of the body, the readiness of the world. They replenish the soul's cleansing capacities. And that's a wonderful, pleasurable experience akin to Omaba. For everyone else, the very best place they can end up in is in Dihenom, which is a venue of cleansing to remove those blemishes brought about by sin. And you've seen the videos. Have you seen those videos? Like a piece of metal that's all rusty and they take a fire and lasers and they purge away the rust and they restore it to its beauty. That is Gehenom. By way of analogy, the verse in Devarim, chapter 4, verse 20, describes the Jewish people's experience in Egypt as an iron crucible. which is a vessel in which you purify gold from its alloys. It's not a pleasant experience at the time. But ultimately, what emerges after that process is refined gold. And therefore, Gehenna is actually a very good place to end up in. Of course, the best would be to just skip that entirely, but that means that you have gold. There's gold here. It needs to be polished, needs to be refined, needs to be buffed up and brought back to its radiant splendor. But it's a good place to end up. They go into Vilna used to say that when a person dies, they actually choose to go to Gehenom. Why? Because after they die, they get to witness the reward of paradise. What you get is not all my buff, not the ultimate reward, but it's akin, it's a measure of it. 
And the longing that the soul has to be there creates a pain that, according to the Gona if a person in this lifetime would experience a millionth of that pain, they would just die in anguish. The pain of the desire, the coveting, the yearning to end up in paradise, that's a million times more intense than what would be needed to kill a person here in anguish. And the person says, I will do whatever it takes to get there. And the person begs to be admitted to Gehenna. Clean me, cleanse me, purge me so I can go to paradise. Gehenom is a good place to end up in. And the Almighty created it in His kindness and benevolence so that a lot more people, almost everyone, can end up in Olam But to do that, you have to be polished in Gehenom first. In the past, I have thought of a, um, a parable to explain this. Suppose you rent a car. And of course, when you rent the car, they document any flaws, any scratches in the car, any deems or dames in the car, anything wrong with the car. But this is not a three-day rental. You're borrowing it for 70 years. And for 70 years, you're driving it through crazy traffic at high speeds in winding roads. And you have this seemingly irresistible urge to drag race like a maniac and to bump into every obstacle along the road. And when you're done, you have to return the rental car. You have to return your soul to its creator. So, of course, the ideal soul, the ideal car, will be spotless, gleaming, perfect. The person was smart, drove very carefully, was fully cognizant of all the obstacles along the road, made sure that they kept their soul, their car, in tip-top shape. If there was a problem, if you got a little fender bender, you fix it, you repent. If it gets a little scratched, you clean it up, you polish it yourself. That is the completely righteous person, straight to paradise, no problem. What is next best? There are some scuffs, some scratches, maybe a big dent. It's dusty, it's dirty, it's not ready, it's not ready. It's not ready for prime time. It has some cosmetic damage, maybe it has some mechanical damage. It needs to be fixed. That's Gehenom. After the soul goes to Gehenom, well, now it's ready for paradise. It's, again, been restored to perfect tip-top shape. But what's the worst? The worst is when the car is totaled. It is beyond repair. It is unusable. It's unrecognizable. And that is what we are trying to avoid most. And what that looks like. When the soul is not eligible, not for paradise, not for purgatory, that is next on our agenda. What happens when a person... Well, we have seen, I guess, briefly when someone can end up in hell for permanent punishment. There's another subject called kares, when the soul gets cut off. And of course, there is the vast and esoteric subject 
of reincarnation. We have a lot of exotic subjects yet to come. I am looking forward and eager to discuss them with y'all. Until then, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments and, of course, your feedback. It is wonderful to study with you together from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. If you want to support our organization, torchweb.org. In every one of the podcasts, there's a link to our website. You can see some of the stuff that we do, and you could support us if you want to partner with us on our sacred mission. And again, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you.